This is the MLW Radio Network. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? It's your boy, Blackheart, the head honcho off the Top Roast Podcast. If you love independent and professional wrestling and like all the juicy gossip of the wrestling industry, then look no further than here, OTTR Headquarters. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitch, and Facebook groups, and whatever that you get your podcast from with our, with our latest Last Week of Wrestling, After Darts, Under Boss's Hard Taste, and now our new upcoming trivia game show, Wrestling Every, coming soon. So if you like what you've seen, you love professional wrestling, you love independent wrestling, you love everything about wrestling just yourself, give us a tune. You know, you would not regret it. Blackheart out. Everyone knows a lot of things can change in the span of 10 years. But when it comes to professional wrestling podcasting, one thing is still guaranteed. The Shining Wizards is the only place to get all the latest wrestling news, interviews with the greatest guests, and of course, tons of laughs in discussing the world of wrestling. The show is still available on Monday nights at 7 p.m. East on RantDMRadio.com and Rant Entertainment Media on the TuneIn app. And it's still available on all podcasting platforms. To check us out, head over to ShiningWizards.com where it's still wrestling talk and talk about wrestling. Are you tired of prediction shows? Do you want to fantasy book the companies? Does Bigfoot even really exist? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then check out the podcast that isn't a podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, the standing streamer stands and delivers as he and Vanessa talk about all that's going on in pro wrestling today. Plus, see in-depth conversations with people in and around the wrestling world as guests share their stories and insights about making it in the business. The Putting You Over Podcast. Putting your weeknights over every Tuesday and Thursday. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night. My name is Thomas and what's your name? Uh, I'm Alan. Alan. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We're brothers. That's right. Yeah, yeah the mother, same mother and father. Your room was... Oh, we shared a room. Shared a room. For we shared a room. Thought I knew your face. Yeah, we so go we... way back, mate. Yeah. yeah. We should do a podcast then. Uh, we have. We do. We do a podcast. We do a podcast. What's it called? The Brocast. Yeah, that was planned. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do we do? Well, we cover all different things in the world of pop culture. We're talking about comic books. We're talking about professional wrestling, and we're talking about movies. Go back and watch classic retro wrestling events, the likes of WWE, WCW, and if you do like that, you can check us out on Apple iTunes, also on Podbean, Anchor, and on Podknife. Also, check us out on Twitter at the Broadcast. That's B R O. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Ending. Yeah, it's all right. Good on you. Yeah. Instagram also at the Broadcast Podcast. Remember, we don't spell it with a C. We spell it with a K. Sorry, mate. Take it easy. Two Heels and a Face Wrestling Podcast believes wrestling is a buffet. There's something there for everyone. These guys cover local Chicago indie scene, and all of their episodes can be found at twoheelsandaface.com. The number two heelsandaface.com Welcome to another episode of Overbooked here on the Front Row Material brand. My name is Mike Freeland. As you know, we are reading the Sabu book. We have already gone through the first 11 chapters, and let's go ahead and let's jump right into chapter 12, which is entitled XPW, WWA, and 3PW. 
I was tired of getting bounce checks and hearing lies from Paul Heyman. I'd had enough pretty much of that stuff. That's why I left ECW. Unfortunately, the promotion was a whole mess, and it was a sinking ship. In August of 99, ECW went national on the national network, TNN. For that, they got a three-year contract. Now, despite having virtually no real advertising or producing shows on a very low budget, according to television standards, ECW became TNN's highest-rated show. However, that didn't really matter. ECW on TNN was canceled about a year into it in October of 2000. Now, I don't know if that's what was possible or what something happened where WWF's Monday Night Raw randomly left its home on the USA Network to move over to the TNN, but you know what? Was it a coincidence? In my opinion, it was not. Without a home, anyhow, Paul Heyman started looking for a new TV network. Now, without being able to land another national TV deal, ECW started to die. ECW was still a mom-and-pop company. ECW was, in fact, a major influence in the world of professional wrestling, happening everywhere. It had become the third biggest company in the United States, just under WWF and WCW. Now, sure, it was on national TV, but we didn't have the proper foundation to compete with the big leagues. ECW didn't have the financial backers, and they didn't have advertising or a steady revenue to pull from. Without the financial backing to get what we needed to compete with the other companies, the WWF just couldn't see ECW being something that would have been competitor. If ECW had money to invest in promoting in their live events, it could have moved out of the bingo halls into bigger arenas. But if ECW had enough money to sign their own wrestlers to competitive contracts, they would have invested invaluable time to building their characters, not just to leave us for us to go to WCW or the WWF. If ECW had the capital, maybe they would have brought in some of those bigger stars, maybe at least one or two of them. ECW was a company living week to week and paycheck by paycheck. Paul Heyman would bring money in and sign big checks, sending it right back out the door. For the most part, nothing was ever being saved or could be invested back into the company itself. ECW was an operation that was still being run right out of a wrestler's apartment. After the cancellation of the television deal, ECW continued to struggle. Financial decisions were based upon money, and that money was tight. Paul thought it was going to come from a new TV deal but we got the rug pulled under us again. When that dried up, well, the whole thing was gone. Trying to secure a last-minute TV deal to save the company was impossible. That was the type of thing that it had to take. But you know what? We didn't have time, and it was taking months. Now, all this would have been totally understandable by the boys if we had only known what was going on. And the fact that Heyman never told any of us what was going on or kept us in the loop. He kept things afloat, by not really telling anyone. Paul Heyman, in everyone's mind, was the last help for this company. He created a false sense of security when he should have just told everyone ECW the truth that ECW was on its last leg. What he did was pretty filthy, if you ask me, and here. He borrowed money from his wrestlers. He kept guys working and offered twice the amount he owed people if they would accept IOUs instead of actual money. He assured them that the cash flow would soon be restored, that everything would be fine soon, and only would be able to pay them if they only had a little bit more time. Eventually, we couldn't do it any longer. No deal came through and the bills were outweighing the income, so that was it. There was nothing saving it. When Paul filed for bankruptcy, he said the company had assets that totaled $1.3 million. His paperwork claimed that the assets' totals included all kinds of debt owed that he still hadn't received. 
The balance of uncontrolled assets included $860,000 from acclaimed video game royalties, from the original San Francisco toy company that made our action figures, and from in-demand network for our pay-per-view royalties. The actual physical assets mostly included ECW's videotape library, which was appraised at $500,000, a 1998 Ford truck, which $19,500 appraised, and a ring for $1,000, and what whatever was left in the inventory of our merchandise. Now, the money that ECW owed was close to $9 million. Wrestlers and talent were owed the most of that. If you look at some of the figures that Paul reported to the court, you might find them to be interesting. Rob Van Dam, $150,000. Shane Douglas, $145,000. Tommy Dreamer, $100,000. Joey Styles, a little over $50,000. Rhino, $50,000. The franchise, $47,000. And Sabu, $2.00. Two effing dollars was owed to Sabu? What is this? Was it a cancellation? Was that a rib on me from Paul Heyman? What could he not see? What? Did he not do any research? I don't know. But I do know that it was all bullshit. Hey, Sabu, I owe you lunch. That's the amount that would have Ken taken. Basically, it was a Big Mac. Well, Paul, man, that was real. A rib in the paperwork. I guess it was a way to get my goat, but then both of us were older and all seems to be good now. I guess I really just don't care anymore. Anyhow, once the writing was on the wall, ECW ran a little longer, but we were no dummies. A bunch of us who were getting smart to the situation abandoned ship. Some guys who didn't have a whole lot of real options stayed, listening to Paul's lies. Newer guys without contracts like H.C. Loke, a referee-turned-wrestler, really got screwed. They weren't making much to begin with, and they were totally dripping into their savings just to pay for events. Tony Mamaluke, a smaller cruiserweight, and a mafia gimmick had jumped to ECW after a quick appearance with WCW to join little Guido in the FBI. He's said to have saved about $50,000 of the money he made in ECW, but for working for Paul for about six months, and all those IOUs ended up wiping him out of his savings. Between believing his lies and working for just promises, the travel and the expenses that everyone occurred working for ECW ate a whole lot of money in the very little that was even there. I didn't fall into any of those categories, and I wasn't a sucker. I just said fuck it. I sat home with ECW shows as far away as I could. And you know what? If they wanted me, I required a pain ticket. I knew better than to spend my own money. My own money out of pocket? At this point, most of the guys started looking for appearances with other promotions. They needed to pay the bills. Now, let's talk about XPW. Big Dick Dudley came for a few of us and told us that he was getting a pretty good payday for doing similar ECW-style shows for promotion on the West Coast called Extreme Pro Wrestling. Now, the promotion sucks, but at least I got paid, he said. XPW started sometime in the summer of 99 out of Los Angeles, stealing a page out of ECW's hardcore wrestling-style book. It only made sense for some of the EC guys to pop up in the promotion. Now, little did we know at the time, however, that XPW would soon be considered by many, like the Bleacher Report, to be one of the most absolute worst wrestling promotions ever. This one guy, Rob Zakari, is the promotion's owner. He also appeared on the shows as being this on-camera owner working under the name of Rob Black. The promotion focused on hardcore wrestling and had connections to the Los Angeles porn industry because the owner was married to a porn star. Rob Black made a fortune producing what could often be referred to as gross-out adult entertainment. It just wasn't traditional pornography. It was people humping while smearing shit on each other's faces or people banging and cutting themselves to rub blood all over each other's bodies. 
Most of these films with Rob often starred his then-wife porn star actress Lizzie Borden. With the company's money, Black was able to buy a ring and run his dream side business in independent wrestling promotion, which featured adult entertainers as our valets. Now, in addition to the promotion's filthy background, XPW pushed these weird soap opera storylines into wrestling like they were trying to produce some type of big characters in us. The plots often involve porn stars making cameos, questionable alternative lifestyles, and then topped everything off with dark, sadistic violence. This shit was weird, and that's even coming from me, who was still at that point seen as doing anything in wrestling, but not even that. Before ECW had completely closed up, my new boss, Rob Black, came to the locker room all excited before one of our shows. He recently made me their heavyweight champion, and at least he knew that I had been around the block some time, and he respected the things that I had to say. It would be, look at this, he said, opening up an envelope. I was taping up one of my ankles. That was bothering me and giving me ready for a match. I was still in pain. He stood there and I looked up to see what he was holding. So I played along. What's that? I reluctantly said. Well, you know what some of the best storylines involve realism. Okay, I thought. I bought six front row tickets for ECW's Heat Wave 2000 and they're coming here for their pay-per-view. For what? I asked. You're going to mark out for Dreamer or something? He laughed. No, I want you and some of the other guys to go to their show and make it clear that ECW is enemy turf. No, that's not happening. I'll pay you, he said. That's still not happening, I said. This is a bad move. You shouldn't do it. Wait, why, he asked. It will cause some friction. It'll be great. You know, like the invasion kind of thing. Even if they don't even mention us, the sheets will pick it up and we'll get our name out there. Envision stuff all of this stuff. Can you envision this? If there was an invasion with us and ECW, man, it would be great. We could do a TV angle. Security's going to kick you out. No, this time the wrestlers will have been forewarned what was going on. That's fucking stupid, I said. I'm warning you, they are going to kick your ass. I think it would be great for them to join us, he said. Keep your name hot and all. No thanks, I'd rather stay cold. So I refused with his idea. I warned them and did everything short of begging them not to do this. It would be stupid. But they didn't listen. At the start of Heat Wave's main event, XPW pulled their shit. The members of the group were Messiah, Kid Chaos, Supreme, Christy Miss, Homeless, Jimmy, and Chris Kloss. They stood up and they pulled off their shirts, revealing XPW logos underneath, thinking that they were now some hot shit. Honestly, it was all pretty embarrassing. Once Tommy Dreamer saw the logos of the home company, they just called over to security who ejected the XPW guys from the building. Although a few fans did see that what we were doing, they did support the outlaws by gesturing with the XPW arm signal. Just as I had said, nothing made it onto screen. XPW was never officially acknowledged on the pay-per-view either. Now, apparently the Sandman must have shared a few too many beers with some of the fans at ringside. Joey Styles, ECW's call-in commentator, after seeing what had happened, beginning the professional rant, he dropped a little blurb to cover what was happening on the screen, and hopefully maybe a couple of people have picked up on it. The ECW locker room heard a murmur of what was going on out there, but it was some game of telephone. Someone surmised that Francine, who was still out at ringside, maybe got slapped on the ass that maybe turned into a fact at that point and everybody got pissed quickly. The ECW locker room was a family. They took that slap on the ass as a slap in the face and they weren't having it. 
One of those guys grabbed your ass at ringside? The locker room fumed as they headed out looking for XPW wrestlers and found just the ring crew who were waiting in a getaway car, like the situation so they would drive off before things got bad. Then, just as I had suspected, a brawl in the parking lot broke out between XPW ring crew and the ECW locker room, which the XPW wrestlers were not even involved in. Picture this, New Jack's music hitting, full blast, then right there by the road is a street fight, an old-fashioned ECW wrestlers, as they were entertaining a gauntlet match. They looked for any trace of invaders that they could find, ended up beating the living shit out of the XPW ring crew, who were wearing the XPW colors. They brutalized the hell out of these guys, until they left them crying for their mommies, and bloody, they were also missing teeth. The next time I saw Rob backstage, he was talking to his battered and banged up minions. I laughed as I looked at them. He didn't even look at me. All I did was say, I told you so, and then that's all I could say. Hot off their shoot ECW invasion angle, XPW planned a big show for July 22nd of 2000 called Go Funk Yourself. The main event had me defending the XPW World Heavyweight Championship at the Los Angeles Sports Arena against my arch enemy, Terry Funk. One year in the business milestone even was considered the highest point of XPW. After that, everything started to fizzle. They just weren't smart. It was like four more months until the next XPW pay-per-view show, and they had lost all their heat in the meantime with no follow-up. They promoted and then failed to bring in Onita for a Japanese deathmatch against us, and that never happened. And then I was supposed to do a big feud with Messiah and then drop the belt to him, but then that fell through too. You see, Messiah got fired before our match for fucking the wife's boss. Clearly, Rob had to change his plans after that. He was not going to put the guy his wife cheated on with on top. After all, he had already been on top of his wife. That was bad enough. So Black had to make other plans. He apparently even made other plans on having me drop the belt to him and his manager in a handicap match. Now, after Lizzie Borden ended up getting a little too close to Messiah and let her do a little much to her, Black decided to take things into his own hands. One night after a show, two guys were paid to visit Messiah's apartment, and they were not looking to get saved either. As the story goes, the former XPW champion William Welch, a.k.a. Messiah, had just been fired from the promotion when news broke of his affair with Lizzie, Rob Black's girlfriend. Now, on Thursday, August 1st, 2002, reports said Messiah was in his apartment in Canyon County playing a video game while his roommate stepped outside to walk the dog. Messiah said in the police report that two African Americans, both in their mid-twenties, around six foot and weighing 230 to 250, came to his door. Messiah was told that they were friends of his roommate, so he greeted them and showed them into the apartment and allowed them to wait for the roommate. Then he went back into his bedroom to play more video games. The two men put on their masks and rushed Messiah from behind. They pulled him out of his little bedroom and then beat the dog shit man out of the dog shit out of him now legend has it that messiah never saw it coming and he was blindsided the assailants dragged him into the living room and then said how you were gonna pay the ultimate sacrifice for your sins before he knew what was happening they cut off his thumb with a garden shears to leave him with a permanent memory of what he had done the quivering severed finger was now on the carpet that wasn't enough. Fighting back the best he could and shifting into defense mode, Messiah made a fist. This fist, however, would not be able to punch someone as he tried to duct tape his wrist together to get a decent hand and clinch it tightly so he could do some type of Brutus the Barber beefcake thing. 
The frustrated attackers gave up and hit Messiah over the head with some big-ass fish tank. Next, the muggers tried to pull Messiah's pants down so they could cut off his holy penis. Dizzy, but not quite out of it, he crawled on his hands and knees to get away. They ended up just stabbing him in the groin area with the garden shears. One punctured wound was very deep, and it was bleeding crazy from his leg. Messiah was a professional wrestler, so he was no pushover, so he was fighting back way more than the attackers had ever imagined he would. They continued to nail him with everything they could nail him with in the apartment, beating him with furniture. They were hoping to knock him out for a better chance to dismember him some more. Somehow Messiah came through and broke one of the attacker's arms in the process. Unsuccessful in cutting anything else off of him, the attackers decided to cut their losses and leave. They didn't want to be considered rude, however, to leave the place a total mess, so they decided to pick up Messiah's dismembered thumb and take it with them on the way out. I thought that was fucking disgusting. When the police finally arrived, they couldn't believe their eyes. It looked like a demon had been set loose from hell on Messiah. His place was in shambles, he was covered in blood, and there were stripes of dark blood all over his white walls and floor. Using a hand with a missing finger, he was frantically trying to pick up the flopping fish from his broken aquarium and get it back to safety. Something was fishy. Pardon the pun. The police saw the assailants didn't steal anything and figured they had to be some kind of ulterior motive instead of wanting something. Because of the timing of the whole thing, many people figured that the attackers weren't really thieves, they were rather hired thugs for some type of revenge. They were brought in as some type of bounty hunters by Rob Black. This was his muscle to get back for wrestlers banging his girlfriend. The police were never able to prove any of this. Messiah said he knew exactly who it was that did the attacking, but never saw justice for what had happened to him. However, Rob Black was featured and fingered in a suspect in an episode of America's Most Wanted regarding the attack. XPW and its promoter were the first focal points of the show that night. Their reporters even showed up to an XPW office, but they refused to answer the door. I think it's important to also note that, however, Rob Black had never been questioned or officially named as a suspect in this case either. I would have loved to have continued to work for him, but a red flag was thrown right away after Rob said what he said. I wouldn't have liked working for Rob anyway. But you can't get mad at him. I mean, he really can't get mad either. He married a porn star, and then he gets mad because somebody else boned her? Please, someone else lost their thumb. Apparently, the porn culture was always pretty prevalent in the XPW locker room. This one guy, Devin Morgan... Donovan Morgan almost walked in on a shoot one day. He tells the story of how he left his first promotion, APW, to become the head trainer at XPW. Wow. One of his first days on the job, Donovan went to lunch, and when he came back to the office, some of Rob's boys were there, and they wouldn't let him in the office. Curious, he went around to the back and peeked in the window. He saw a nice girl sitting on Rob's desk, blowing about six guys at the same time, and one of them was a midget. He quietly left. Let's talk about New Jack. Yep, New Jack spent some time in XPW as well. Before ECW was gone on March 12th of 2000, the Living Dangerously pay-per-view in Dansbury, Connecticut, New Jack had a scaffold match with Vic Grimes. Now Vic is a big bastard. He weighed something like 350. So when Vic Grimes locked up with New Jack and fell around 15 feet on a scaffold, you knew the impact had to be bad. To make matters worse, Vic missed the tables that were supposed to absorb the blow of his fall. Instead, Vic Grimes landed hard on the concrete floor, but not before locating the softest part of his big fat ass that absorbed most of the impact. Yep, it was on New Jack's head. 
After that match, if he hasn't already fucked things up with New Jack, New Jack suffered legitimate brain damage. He had a number of operations that never really were the same afterwards. He also suffered permanent blinding from his right eye. Although it was a legitimate accident, New Jack openly vowed to get revenge in promos whenever he could. Eventually, a rematch between the two was posed for February 23rd of 2002, and it was booked for an XPW show aptly called Freefall in Los Angeles. Now, during the bout, a scaffold once again was directly above the ring. Now, for the finish, New Jack grabbed Vint Grimes and threw him off the scaffold again, but missing the table. Grimes' gross body plummeted around 40 feet down to the ring, but there were no tables nor was there anything to break his fall. The stunt clearly didn't work out as planned, or at least how they had discussed, backstage before the match. Grimes slightly brazed two of his 12 tables that he was intended to fall on, but he just ended up dislocating his ankle when he smacked hard on the ring ropes. It was later revealed that maybe things didn't turn out, at least how New Jack had planned in 2005 documentary, Forever Hardcore, New Jack said that he intentionally threw Grimes so hard he wanted him to pass the tables because he wanted his body to hit the ring post on the way down. New Jack said that he wanted Grimes severely injured or better yet, killed for whatever happened, whatever he meant by that. However, others would also say under closer evaluation of the spot, a trained professional can see that Grimes noticeably pushed off the scaffold with his foot himself, sending his pig-like body further out than he should have. Think about how subsequently he overshot those tables, but those were due to his own actions. New Jack being the old school carny that he's possibly just taking credit for a spot even though the most hardcore fans knew it was a different situation. Also from that same interview, New Jack admitted that his first incident in the first ECW Living Dangerously scaffold match was actually his own fault. He said he pulled Grimes down from the scaffold too early. He wasn't really pissed at Grimes about the accident. What he really didn't like was how Grimes tried to make himself look good in the locker room. He was shit-talking at Jack's expense. He went around bragging to the boys that he hurt him, and he had to find other opportunities to correct what was gone wrong. Yep, he said he got New Jack. This maybe explains why New Jack claims he intentionally shoved Grimes toward the outside of the ring the second time around. Now boasting probably less than fact, he wanted Grimes hurt as revenge for the brain damage and what he did to his eye. You know, that's Vic Grimes alright. Vic Grimes hurt himself with his own shit talking in the locker room. I'm not defending New Jack, I just think that Grimes was taking a little more credit for the accident and that Grimes really shouldn't have. Anyway, just like I tell people today, New Jack always says that working for Rob Black was fucking crazy. New Jack told me once that after working an XPW show, Rob Black explained that he didn't have all the money for him. After the show, he asked Jack to meet up with him at a warehouse for payment. New Jack was tough and didn't expect any messiah-like foul play. But when he got there, Rob led him into this warehouse where he was hoping that New Jack would go through all kinds of boxes like some kind of kid in a candy store and pick out some kind of merchandise instead of taking cash. Yes, Rob Black was actually attempting to pay New Jack in sweet porn DVDs. Remember how I mentioned that I didn't think that Jim Ross was all that great? Back around this time in 2001 or so, I kept getting calls from Paul Heyman. He had successfully made the jump over to the dark side, which was the WWF, and he needed to make himself stand out by the big brass in the WWF, 
instead of just working with little fishes. Therefore, knowing that I had been a good meal ticket for him at ECW, he had hoped that I would come in and save him in another situation. Like the other ECW guys, I still had great heat with Paul over money and promises that were never made. But as any wrestler will tell you, a payday is a payday, so I don't mind listening to the devil when there wasn't any food on the table and I was hungry. Now, Paul kept calling me with all these tidbits and information about the WWF. He kept giving me contract numbers and leads to jobs. After every call, he would always suggest that I just suck it up and throw my name to the hat. I don't know how many times he made me swallow my pride and call Jim Ross, who was at that time the head of talent relations from 2001 to 2002. He made me do it a lot. However, no matter how many times Paul made me want to call Jim, I ended up calling him. It seemed like my messages were either not getting to him, or of course he just chose to ignore him. Finally, I think Jim had enough of my voicemail, so he finally called me back. He would say, so Terry, I got your messages, and I'm sorry, I haven't gotten back to you sooner. I've been really busy, he said. That's okay, I said, even though I wanted to say something like, that's probably because you big fat ass lazy piece of shit. So Terry, one reason I didn't write back to you was that I heard your health wasn't up to par, he said. What's your condition like right now? Are you at 100%? Just about, I said. My arm is a little messed up, but it doesn't bother me. Well, the problem is, JR said, I honestly don't think you'll ever be able to work 100% here in WWE. Using 100% of this context, meaning I would never come in and work a full-time spot on the roster any time ever. I thought it was very funny. Okay, well, fuck you then, I said, and I hung up. Now, regarding that call today, I would like to say again, fuck you, Jim. Not only is that guy's comment ugly, not funny, but you're an ugly fat son of a bitch yourself, and that's something you can never fix. Now, after many years on the call in 2001, and after many runs with the WWE, Jim Ross had nothing to do with him then. I was invited to a WWE Hall of Fame one time. I was excited to see so many of the boys again after missing them for so many years, but knew there was one downside to attending. The only person I wasn't thrilled about coming across was, yep, good old JR. Now, Melissa, my girl, is much nicer than I will ever be. When we showed up to the induction and started greeting everyone, she saw Jim Ross over in a corner and figured it would be a good gesture to have me squash the heat between us. Go over and bury the hatchet, she said. The hatchet? The hatchet that's in my back? Stop. Go over and shake his hand. Well, eventually I did because Melissa asked me, but I fucking hated it. I'm sorry my wife. I'm sorry his wife died, but he's still an asshole. Let's talk about another experience I had. Juggalo Championship Wrestling. For those of you who are not familiar with the term, the Insane Clown Posse, also known as ICP, is a hardcore underground hip-hop duo from Detroit. Now, the group is composed of Joseph Bruce and Joseph Ulster, who also are known as evil clown personas, and they go by the names of Violent J and Shaggy Two Dope. Now, ICP has a very, very gimmicky style, and it makes sense because they're huge wrestling fans themselves, so much of what they do was created from their own wrestling promotion based upon the things that they would see when they would get together on the weekends. Their Juggalo Championship Wrestling is by far the oddest promotion I have ever worked for. And for those of you unlucky enough to know what a Juggalo is, allow me to enlighten you. Insane Clown Posse fans are called Juggalos. I'm going to repeat that. Juggalos. I guess it comes from some walk of life. There's recently been a big push by the government to consider them to being a gang or something. 
However, when you look at them, they're all sort of these goth, rap, tattooed, body-modified misfits who often paint their faces with their own rule-breaking clown personas. Now, by definition, I guess Shaggy Tudub says that just they're anyone. Anyone can be a juggalo. It doesn't matter if you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth or a crack rock in your mouth. At first, anyone gathering for the juggalos is going to be a juggalo. Now, in the early 2000s, ICP first decided to promote their first own festival with everything that they like to celebrate with their fans. These shows were loaded with crazy music, hardcore wrestling, and all kinds of nasty acts of debauchery. They planned it out to seem like some evil rap-based Woodstock with bizarre sideshows and weird spring break-like activities. Some sideshows included comedy acts like Jimmy Walker, the Human Cannonball, Wet T-Shirt Contest, and life-threatening bonfires, the violent and flammable tables where you fight one another, and the juggalos then blow up boxes, and then you go over on a water slide. JCW is a wrestling promotion, and it's one of the biggest sideshows of any of the gatherings I've ever been at. Because of the loyal diehard fans that support these juggalos, oh yeah, and the girls are known as juggalettes, the gathering of the Juggalos was since become an annual week-long getaway, and everyone either goes to a campground or a trailer park and puts up a few stages, some musical acts come into play, and then the ICP perform. My first stint with the Juggalo Championship Wrestling was on July 14th of 2001 in Toledo, Ohio. The clowns wanted me winning a battle royal to determine the new JCW Heavyweight Champion. Now, if the title had been vacated... I'd been there for maybe one or two days when the former Vampiro won the championship. As I recall, I felt like ICP were being real marks backstage and actually kind of rude to me at the time. I remember the first time Joe booked me for something like 10000 to work for them for their big week-long event. However, when I first met Violent J, I didn't know who he was. He was acting like he was another big mark and said he was the Sheik's long-lost son. I kicked him right then and there out of my own dressing room for saying something like that. I'm not only the one who was actually the Sheik with the Sheik's family, but you were disrespecting my family as well and disrespecting the business. Now, Abdul the Butcher was there too, and they were yelling at him, saying, Hey, Larry, backstage, like he was one of the Three Stooges or something. And they continued the gag in public by making him go out there and act like he was curly when he was commentating. But then when I wrestled for them, it blew my mind. The crowd was hot, but they were more insane than anything else. Then again, that's the insane clown posse. They were all smoking pot, which, you know, I didn't mind. There was a lot of nudity, strangely pierced lady parts. Believe me at that. And at one point, I saw a fat pregnant Jegalette, yep, that's what they call the women, flash, squeeze her juicy tits, and spray the front row with her breast milk. It really was all some sorts of nonsense. It was the most disgusting crowd I'd ever encountered. I remember another time when they booked me on the JCW tour. Yep, we had a tour. One night they didn't even have me wrestle a match. They just wanted me to go into the crowd with Fago and start body surfing everybody. What? Yeah, I found out Fago was like a high calorie super sugar pop drink and that's all they used. I would squeeze it and then I would go crowd surfing. I guess to do a run-in on one of ICP's live shows, that's what they wanted. But before I decided to jump and just crowd surf, backstage, they kept tossing me bottles of this Fago, like I was like Steve Austin or something. The first handful I opened up and I drank a little bit, you know, spilling half of it on my shirt, of course. But after I was covered, 
I then took my spike and I sprayed the audience with Fago. The audience loved it. The last time I went over and I just went crazy because why not? I shook the bottles up and I shot them out in the crowd, just like a rocket, and things crashed and exploded. Now nobody gave a shit at that point in time because everybody was out there having a good time, so I just made them fly like rockets. As the ICP did more of their shows, they got over. They treated the wrestlers however they were supposed to be treated, and the whole gathering got bigger and bigger. Now come 2007, I worked for them practically every year for their event. In my initial return to JCW in 07, I teamed with the Insoundclaim Posse themselves to defeat Trent Acid and a younger Alter Boys at Juggalo Champion Shit Wrestling's Bloody Mania. Yeah, that's the title. One of the interesting things is, both of my times in ECW, Raven and I never really got to wrestle each other except for that angle that we never really got to finish off in TNA. So the clowns decided, well, why don't we just do what they didn't get to finish? So in 2008, for the second show of J JCW's Internet Wrestling Show, yeah, that's one they had as well, it was called Slam TV. I was booked to work with Raven for the lead-in to me working for him with the championship. Now, Corporal Robinson put the JCW Heavyweight Championship on the line against this guy named Sexy Slim Gordy. Now, when Robinson went off in his finishing move, the lights went out. When they came back on, Raven was in the ring and hit Robinson with the DDT. In the third episode, Raven and Sexy Slim Gordy knocked Corporal Robinson out with a steel chair. Then, Raven began to shave Robinson's afro with electric clippers, and then I came out of the crowd, I scared Raven off, leaving Robinson with a half-shaved afro. This led to a tag team of Raven and Sexy Slim against Corporal Robinson and me in the following episode. Are you following me on all this? Now, if you're fortunate enough to be able to get a copy of this excellent piece of wrestling history, mightn't you, you'll notice that I'm not wrestling in the traditional style. Most people know me for. Now, the reason for this was I had fractured my hip just before the show. Now, because of this, I had to wrestle very old school. Just the basics. I mean, I wrestled normally. I don't want to even accept a booking if I can't do moonsaults in my hardcore stuff that I'm known for. However, with little notice, I was basically reduced to stomping and punching and kicking and hitting, and then I also got some chair shots in as well, but not very many. This led to my first one-on-one -on -one headline event with Raven. Now, by the time Bloody Mania 3 event rolled around in 2009, the gathering of the Juggalos had become a big-time event. People flew in from all around the world to take part of it. While the openers are spin-offs of acts that were produced by ICP, they now could afford to bring in real headliners. Guests included artists like Buster Rhymes, Aunt Coolio, Juvenile, Little John, George Clinton, and so many more. They also brought in guests for the celebrity hosts for the main event, such as Dustin Diamond, Charlie Sheen, Flavor Flav. They would promote nostalgic retro names like the Fat Boys and Biz Markie and MC Hammer, and almost everybody now is a big joke. Now, it's kind of like the celebrities that the WWE would have, but definitely different. But we really had something going here. Now, from what I understand, Vanilla Ice was performing at one event at the gathering as well. Let's get back to Bloody Mania 3. Finally, I would take on Raven for the first time in a Raven's Rules match. Now, for this one, Raven's was managed by Wildfire Tommy Rich. And at one point in the match... I locked Raven into a camel clutch and Tommy Rich ran into the ring acting as if he was going to attack me and then he turned on Raven. I went for the finish. I set up Raven up on top of the table. I climbed to the top rope and performed my leg drop just as planned. However, we didn't plan a botch. Oh fuck. The table didn't break. I leaned over and asked Raven what should we do and Raven laughed. 
he was all fucked up too. Now, normally, you would pretty much just party after the match is over and have a good time. The only guy who didn't do that was a guy named Sandman. But Scotty and I never did as well. We kind of did, but not always. We consider ourselves too professional to do that. However, this was JCW's promotion, and we were getting fucked up pretty much 24-7. So I laid there for the second, and I started laughing too. And then I did the best I could to go ahead and get back up. After Raven recovered, he put me on the table and climbed to the top rope. Raven jumped down on me with his elbow, but I moved out of the way. The finish was saved as I pinned Raven for the win. At the next year's gathering, a reality show star named Tila Tequila had the honors of being booked as a celebrity guest host at Cave in a Rock, Illinois. She also had the honors of getting her little ass beat by some juggalettes who didn't like her attitude. She was scheduled to do a six-song set. However, a little on a few days before that, the Juggalos online had her performing. The fans weren't stupid. They noticed that she was really fake, and they couldn't wait for her to be done. Before Tia even came on stage, mobs of Juggalos were collecting around the stage. It was evident that her appearance wasn't in a good way. Word got out quickly that she was a poser and she was just collecting things for a payday. Chants and signs were made about her, calling her everything you can think of, and I'll tell you this, none of them were good. They were booing her and chanting obscenities at her before she even started to sing. This was heat, but it was bad heat. Tequila was a heel to the Juggalos, a group of misfits in the land of misfit toys. Tequila represented a lot of things, but all of them were negative. She was every girl who you ever wanted to masturbate to in high school, but could never find the courage to speak to. She was a really hot girl in the bar that you would try to buy drinks for, but instead you went home with nothing. In the seminar tent, Violent J and Shaggy Tudope held the stage for the Juggalo addressing, explaining the acts to fans what they could expect to see. They predicted how the Insane Clown Posse's fight would go, how things would happen with the fans. Now, Violent J also said it was funny to watch some of the dudes get hit with a dead fish or pelted with piss, or that the Juggalos could feel free to behave however they saw fit at the shows. At the same time, however, every performer at the gathering was a guest of the psychedelic family and should enjoy the same privileges. I'm gonna try to fuck that bitch, I'm gonna fuck her up, Shaggy said. Later that night, Tequila walked onto stage super late, surrounded by security, wearing nothing but a tiny pair of Daisy Dukes that showed her whole ass and even a smaller bikini top. Her looks didn't matter. The hotter she was, the more they hated her. Tequila started her act complete with bad white girl dance moves and the lamest lyrics possible about sleeping with DJs and kicking people's asses. She came off really fake and, well, the shark smelled blood. Tequila hid behind the security as the audience angrily began to launch shit at her from every direction. And wrestling, that can be kind of a good thing when it comes to heat. But this wasn't wrestling event, it was her singing. The fans looked like rabid wrestling fans in Puerto Rico. Her singing wasn't getting over with them, no matter how hard she tried. The younger, most male crowd started in with some of the worst chants you can think of yelling at a woman. Show us your tits and show us your tits. Now, trying to win them over, she actually whipped her puppies out in desperation. Now, even though her boobs were nice, it didn't really work. The chant immediately turned to, We hate your tits. We hate your tits. Now, the Juggalos went on pelting her with shit. That's right, literal shit, as in feces. 
One guy in the back said he threw a handful of watermelon shell that was out of urine and feces into her face with what it looked like. It actually looked like a peanut butter cup as it was spiraling in the air towards her. After that, everything went downhill. Tequila, in her own words, told reporters, Dudes were throwing huge stones of rocks in my face. Beer bottles that slit my eye open almost burnt my hair on fire. They threw firecrackers on stage, and they even took the shit out of the porta potty and threw shit and piss on me when I was on stage. Tequila said that after the audience stormed the stage, her bodyguards and other security personnel grabbed her and ran her to a nearby trailer for shelter, but that didn't stop the juggalos. Since their security sucked, 2,000 people were still running after us, trying to kill me, Tequila told TMZ. It was scary as hell. The rabid crowd broke the windows and tried to get at her. Three guards inside the trailer had to hold tables over the broken windows to prevent people from storming inside the vehicle. Throwing stuff was not a barred thing in ICP events by any means. Two years after this, on August 10th, 2012, Ric Flair was booked for a week-long gathering to be the celebrity MC. He reluctantly accepted the booking after hearing the boys how rowdy the fans got. While Flair was performing his hosting duties, he began getting pelted with bottles from the crowd. I didn't sign on for this, he said. He immediately left. ICP understood, and Flair was still paid in full. Now, I'm not mentioning the story above anything else. You know, I was there, and I saw it all. I were to walk down to that drug bridge, an infamous spot in the campground where everyone parties, I would have pray for anything, anything, that I was not going to be treated badly. In the gatherings experience, the Juggalos never threw my stuff or threw anything at me, except I got treated like a king. I got free food, I got free drugs, really whatever I wanted. But by February 2011, booking with GCP, uh, which is something that was called Flashlight Hysteria. The event at that point in time was a modern exchange in Southgate, Michigan, which they decided to do something sort of innovative, but also kind of insane at the same time. The guy I worked for was named Bull Payne. Bull started off as a generic enhancement talent under the name Rick Gantner in both WWF and AWA. He knew the basics. He knew how to wrestle in the USWA and the GWF. However, Payne took on a gimmick of a roughneck wrestler that still didn't find much exposure until a run in Big Japan that boosted his career. Now, after his stint in Japan, Bull Payne brought the Japanese death style back to the States, establishing himself as a top wrestler in IWA Mid-South. Then he ultimately became an occasional main eventer for Juggalo Championship Wrestling. Bull Payne was not the fucked up thing at all. He was the saddest of all of it. First off, in 2011, the show started at 4 a.m., which was unfucking heard of for a wrestling show. But that wasn't the weirdest thing about the show. The most bizarre thing was what they were calling flashlight wrestling. This was a gimmick match from the ICP, where they would shut off all the lights for the ring and let the fans control the lighting where they wanted to. The only light sources were these bullshit flashlights pointed at the ring. Talk about bullshit. Flashlight wrestling. Now stop for a second and think about how important lighting is in a crucial moment in a match. Picture outside of the ring and an opponent is about to jump on you. In that type of spot, you have to catch the other wrestler so he doesn't kill himself. Or so you don't fall and break something. Now leave the lighting up to these juggalo assholes. That sounds like a great idea. As your opponent jumps off, these dickheads shut off their lights and guys were getting kicked in the face and landing on the floor. Yeah, it might have seemed funny, but it was absolutely ridiculous. 
Bull and I did the best we could in our match, but it was actually really not good. Let's be honest, it was the shits, because most of the fans controlling the lights were also high as hell. Now, the biggest payday came off pretty quickly. The last tour I worked for them was something around $200 a show. They wanted the homie price, not for me. I want to talk about FMW deathmatches for a second. Back in 2002, FMW, where I got my first real break, was really falling apart. I was still working with them, and I would until the very end, until things got really bad with the promoter, and almost fucked things up every possible way. But during most of my time there, this guy running the shows, he was actually the promoter who ran Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling from 1995 until its demise. And FMW was kind of in and out. This guy started to be a gopher. He was more like an assistant at that point. He was brought down. He was bringing guys to the airports and getting foods and being a gopher, you know, stuff like that. Eventually, he became a ring announcer. And if you watch some of those death matches, you can actually hear his high-pitched voice during the countdowns. Eventually, he worked his way up to the FMW chief executive officer. Soon after I started with ECW, Onita retired from FMW as the new CEO. And then Ari came in, and he changed the tone of everything in hopes of bringing in more money for the promotion. He cut down on a lot of the crazy trademark death matches that they would usually do, and they moved Hayabusa into a high spot as being a face in the company. In 1996, Onita got the itch again to wrestle and returned back home to Japan. However, in his absence, a lot of things changed. Because of this, he caused a lot of friction backstage, and he wanted to get back at the helm. But due to Anita's new ego and the attitude he had towards younger stars, Ari began to force him out of FMW, and that was all that said. FMW's new direction was completely different. FMW started to look more like WWE, transforming their hardcore style into more marketable entertainment family shows. Especially it was different when you look at what FMW actually was. In fact, they became so friendly that they were signed to TV and pay-per-view deals with DirecTV. Fans didn't like this massive change. Instead of bringing it into mainstream money, many of the followers abandoned them, and FMW lost a shitload of cash. Even though he had a big influence on FMW before this, Ari had to hit them up for big money to keep them afloat. Things in FMW just didn't quite seem the same. A few months later, on May 16, 2002, Japanese newspaper headlines said that Ari must have finally gone through with his plan. Apparently, a jogger found him hanging from his necktie from a tree that morning in Tokyo Park. Ari had, was later buried in another memorial garden with an FMW logo on his gravestone representing the company that he pretty much died for when he tried to keep it alive. I want to talk about WWA and other indies. After the first ICP show in 2001, I continued to take bookings everywhere else. One of the more noticeable bookings I took was for World Wrestling All-Stars. Now, late in 2001 and then into 2002, I was working a lot of different shows for promotions, and so was Fonzie. He was back being my manager. The practice almost became norm for promoters. They pretty much knew the deal. Fozzie followed me. He was my manager. So many different shows. So was WWA. It was also worth mentioning that my appearances with Fonzie also included pay-per-views, which was something relatively unheard of in the independent world. 
World Wrestling All-Stars was a promotion run by an Australian concert promoter named Andrew McManus. The promotion started a year before I showed up in 01, and it was one of the several promotions with big money behind them. It was coming into existence after WCW and ECW were gone. They were considered a successor to WCW and ECW due to the using of most of the talent, and it was also the precursor to TNA. Vince Russo was supposed to be one of the head writers, but some kind of conflict came up and the promotion started, and he was brought in as just merely a consultant. He recommended former WCW ring announcer Jeremy Borash to be the booker in his absence and pretty much ran the talent for all the shows. Borash focused on signing wrestlers who didn't go to the WWF after they were bought out by WCW. They hoped to provide an alternative to WWF, but they only lasted until 2003. Some very famous WWF and WCW wrestlers worked for him, including Sting, Bret Hart, Sid Vicious, Buff Bagwell, Lex Luger, Jeff Jarrett, Road Dogg, Rick and Scott Steiner, Psychosis, Devin Storm, Juventud Guerrero, Jerry Lynn, Shane Douglas, Stevie Ray, Mike Sanders, and Disco Inferno. Now, Borash was smart enough. He also booked a number of new talent to be the backbone of the company. These names included AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, Frankie Kazarian, and Sharkboy. Now, they all became the heart and soul of TNA after WWA fell apart. The first big show that I was a part of was back in February of 2002 at their Revolution pay-per-view. It took place in Las Vegas, Nevada, a spot where I was working against Devin Storm in a hardcore match. Now, our feud continued at Eruption in Australia that happened later on in April, where Storm and I were pitted against each other in a steel cage. It ended up in me coming off the top of the cage onto Storm, who was unconscious on top of two tables that were stacked on top of each other. After that, they continued to pump money into the company, hoping for the next big thing would come around, but it didn't. World Wrestling All-Stars European Tour went from November to December of 2002, where they had a big pay-per-view in Glasgow called Retribution, which aired two months later in February. I worked a lot with Perry Saturn and Simon Diamond. Eventually, I learned the hard way that wrestling fans wanted live pay-per-views and that flying big names and all around the world was expensive. When the money started to run out, WWA threw in their last pay-per-view in The Reckoning in New Zealand. At that time, I worked with Shane Douglas leading up to the big pay-per-view payoff. But Shane got hurt, so I wasn't going to be working with Shane Douglas at that point. I wrestled against Joe E. Legend instead. That was kind of it for me. I remember shortly after things had fell apart, I got a call from Eddie and Tommy Farhat. That's right, my cousin, the Sons of the Sheik. All World Wrestling League began in 2003. It was a legitimate spinoff of Big Time Wrestling, the same promotion that was made famous by my father. They didn't have the financial backing of WWA, but they definitely wanted to try to at least try to conquer the world. Now, around that time, I went to work for the promotion, and it was called MECW out of Indiana, which was beyond welfare. I did a few shows for them just to let them know. I wasn't going to be making big money when I was going down for them, but I tried. This was probably the lowest point of my career. The promoter, and I use that term very loosely, I think just booked wrestlers so he could hang out with them. One night my music hit and I walked out to wrestle in front of 15 people. It wasn't just me. This locker room included Kurt Henning, Barry Windham, and the public enemy. The thing that made things even worse is that after freebies, only four of them had the rest of them in the audience were there. They were the wrestlers' wives. So think about it. 15 people were there, and four people were wives. 
As you'd probably expect, the guy who ran this bullshit well for cheese promotion had no money at the end of the night, so when it came time to pay us before I went to the hotel, he handed me what I figured was a rubber check that would bounce. The next morning I drove to the bank, as I usually did, and I tried to get that check in on time. When I went to cash at the bank, they first delayed me for some time. I waited around until I sat in the manager's office and there was a problem with the computer and they said they couldn't access the funds. That's probably because there are no funds in this Mark's account. I continued to wait, hoping to get my money still. All of a sudden, the police showed up and joined me in the office. They almost arrested me. It wasn't a check that I was passing. It was a counterfeit check that I was given. The manager of the bank said it was the worst counterfeit check he had ever seen, and he had accused me of printing the promoter's check on a computer. Boy. After overlapping this whole time frame in 2002, ECW fans probably remember when I worked for another hardcore promotion called Propane Pro Wrestling. This company was based out of Philadelphia and even ran the former ECW arena. With ECW leaving a void behind, the Blue Meanie decided to step in and give promoting a shot. He decided to fill in the hardcore hole appropriately with his porn star girlfriend, Jasmine St. Clair, she was, and definitely known to being hardcore herself, but for a whole different reason. At that time, she was known for winning the prestigious world record of banging the most dudes at the same time on video. After surviving a 300-man pussy-pounding, over the top gangbang battle royal ever. Blue Meanie really wanted to give ECW back to the fans, but as soon as he enlisted the services of ECW promoter Todd Gordon, they booked former ECW names like Raven, Sandman, Bigelow, Terry Funk, and Al Snow. Then returning the favor for us, he would also use other names on other shows, so I got brought in as well. Meanie brought me back in several times. I needed a paycheck. You know what? He's a really good dude. The three PW shows initially ran the ECW arena, but XPW's Rob Black didn't like that because he was running there too. Now, XPW threw the arena some extra money to get an exclusivity arrangement. Listen, the company had a few good years in them, but late 2004, 3PW ran out of cash. Eventually, Todd Gordon resigned over a money dispute. When St. Clair also stopped receiving her royalty checks, she said fuck this and decided to sell her share of the promotion. In a move only a porn star would consider, she put her share of 3PW up for sale on a one-day auction on eBay. Nobody bid on the promotion at a hefty $180,000 starting price. But I do think she got a buy-it-now sale from a pair of her used panties she also listed. In the end, Meanie was unable to find an investor, and the final 3PW show was June 18th of 2005. Let's talk about my time with Bill Alfonso. In 1978, I broke in. I had worked on and off for various shows, but on this particular show in Amarillo, Texas, Dory Funk paid me. I considered it to be my first professional match as a referee. Since then, I had pretty much seen it all and done it all, but my first match was really something else. It was Terry Funk versus the original Sheik. I didn't know it at the time, but it would lead me to a relationship with Sabu over 20-some-odd years. I remember the first real hardcore experience that would eventually lead me to ECW happening in Florida. One night it was Barry Windham, Steve Kern, Mike Rotunda, and myself driving through the Everglades. Cell phones were just coming into the works right now, little before anyone knew, but we all had guns. We all had snakeskin boots, and we all had radar detectors. We stopped the car to get out to shoot our guns at the Gators. Hey, Fonzie, I heard Steve Kern say, I'm going to warm up first. 
See the sign over there? I'm going to go hit that. Kearns raised his 9mm to get ready to fire. Ah, come on, Daddy, I said. The man would ironically become the crocodile trasher skinner in the WWF. Anyone could hit that sign. Okay, he replied. I'll hit the pole then. I bowed and I hand my gesture with my gun. Okay, I'll see if you got it. Now Kearns fired. The bullet ricocheted and hit Barry right in his leg. Barry dropped. We all flipped out. We didn't know what to do. All we did was pull over on the side of the road to shoot our guns, and then all of a sudden, this happened. All we could see was the bullet sticking out of his leg. We used a jackknife. Kearns and Mike were prying the bullet out when Dusty Rhodes called Barry's mobile phone. I picked up. You boys are cutting it awful close, he said. Are you coming for the show or what? I looked over at Barry and he nodded. We'll be there, Daddy. We just got to get a bullet out. And something started bleeding real bad. Barry's bleeding like a son of a bitch, but we'll tape it up and we'll be there for the show. I couldn't believe it. We got the bullet out and it started bleeding even more. Barry just taped it up and we went to the show. We wrestled an hour-long Broadway with Harley Race. Now, at the time, I thought it was hardcore as hell, but it all happened before I met Sabu. When I got to Philly to do ECW, I had just gotten off the road with Vince. Shane Douglas was impressed with my work, so he brought me in. Who don't remember, I was considered corporate at that time because I had already been with the WWF, and I was with Vince McMahon. I pretty much was the black sheep my first few months in ECW. I never really met any of the guys before, so I was a new face in the locker room. Except I got to know Sabu. You know, my first match was, I asked him, it was the sheep. You want to tell me about it? Well, I can't tell you much, but I can show you, I said. Your uncle stabbed me with a pencil right here. I showed him the spot on my arm. Sabu laughed like he'd never laughed before. I eventually got booked more and more. I even got booked to be Taz's mouthpiece. And honestly, I never talked that much being a referee. So when I started doing interviews, despite having been in the business for 15 years at this stage, I was still kind of green on the mic. Tommy Dreamer was so cool at producing my promos. He explained to me how the fans were super smart, and he told me how to treat my interviews they were like a shoot. They began like this five-year run that got me so over in the business, and to think I just started out as a WWF referee. But I'll be honest with you, how can you not love Sabu? I remember one day back in the United States, Sabu had seen a WWF tour bus somewhere on the road and got an idea into his head that we wanted to throw a new Winnebago camper. He figured we could go for a ride and show it in class and we wouldn't even stop and sleep. We would just keep on going and we would hunt down hotel rooms. He thought it would be great to just drive out of Philly on a mobile home that very night and just see what happens and where life took us next. I'll be honest with you. To sum it up, Sabu is by far the toughest, most hardcore, generous, and funny guy I've ever known. And I'm calling it right down the middle, Daddy. These are the comments from Bill Alfonso, who would be the manager of Sabu and be a very impressionable individual in the world of wrestling. That is going to conclude Chapter 12 of Overbook. Next time we get together, we will be reading Chapter 13 called Typical Indie. Once again, if you're enjoying this, continue to follow us as we are reading the Sabu book. Once again, if you are wondering where you can get a copy of this, you can find it anywhere uh, books are available at. I know you could definitely get it on Amazon as well, but it's Sabu, Scars, Silence, and Super Glue. With that being said, my name is Mike Freeland, and I will catch you on the next episode of Overbooked.
My name is Mike Freeland, and if you're looking for an exciting wrestling podcast to add to your library, then look no further than the Front Row Material brand. Each and every week, I sit down with some of the most exciting superstars in the world of wrestling, from upcoming stars in the indies to dedicated veterans of the squared circle. I also host a daily podcast called Headlines, which gives you the updated information on all your favorite superstars in all your favorite promotions, giving you not only the backstage look, but also what are the industry experts saying about things. And finally, join myself and my my executive producer, The Rit, where we talk about everything in the world of professional wrestling all across the landscape, from storylines to interviews to what's happening and what we think is going to be happening the next time you turn on your TV. Don't miss it. It's the Front Row Material brand brought to you by the MLW Radio Network. The world of MLW Radio never stops.